this is Chester Elton. Today on the Anxiety at Work podcast, we are talking about how to become a master of your own life and destiny. Joining me is my writing partner and my dear friend, Adrian Gusting. Well, thank you, Chester. Uh, in this episode, we have, we've invited a really great guest, a world-renowned specialist in human behavior who says there's a hidden order to the chaos of the universe that's going to help us understand our psychology. Dr. John Demartini is an author, a global educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. He is the author of 40 books, including The Breakthrough Experience. He began his career as a doctor of chiropractic and has since studied more than 30,000 books across all the defined academic disciplines and has synthesized the wisdom of the ages for us here today. That is quite the introduction, uh, Dr. Demartini. so no pressure. We just want you to know how delighted we are to have you on our podcast. Well, uh, Dr. Demartini, you know, you write about anxiety is fear, but that it can be dissolved. Can you explain what causes anxiety in us and, and how you take control of that emotion? How do we help people dissolve that anxiety? Okay. Well, anxiety is sort of a form of fear. I call it a compounded secondary or tertiary form of fear. Fear is an assumption that you're about to experience through your senses or imagination in the future through those senses. More drawbacks and benefits, more negatives and pauses, more pains and pleasures, more losses and gains. So it's an assumption that you're about to experience some loss without a gain and negative without a positive. Anxiety is compounded. That means you had an initial fear and then you've had things compounded by reminding you of it by different associations. Now, these are all associations in the brain because there's sensory receptors that transduce sensory stimuli into the brain and neural impulses. But then when they get associated with things that are going on in our past experience stored in our subconscious mind, we now taint those experiences with the previous experiences and we create a fear or a fantasy, a phobia or philia by the associations we associate with it. And these are reversible or changeable. There's a area of the brain that is involved in valency Valency is the ability to add a positive or negative spin on any experience we have in life. We automatically assume that some things are good or bad, but they're not until we've subjectively biased our interpretation and labeled it as such. So we have the capacity to make new associations and new links with anything. We can turn anything into just about something positive. We can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of heaven, as John Milton said. So it's all about asking the questions to make this cognitive of the advantages over the disadvantages to turn something frightening into something that's fulfilling. So this is a cognitive reappraisal or a, a way of making new associated links in the brain. And the brain with its neurotensin compound and its various neurotransmitters, at the second you change these associations, you change the neurotransmitters and change the area of the brain that fires off in the, the amygdala, which is involved in valency production, uh, it can change the two regions in two different tracks of whether it's something positive or negative based on the associations you make to it. So if I ask you questions and make you aware of things you're unconscious of, 
um, and balance out the valency, the, the emotional charge on it, I can turn a fear into something inspi inspiring. I do that every single day almost working with people. So it is is not that difficult to do. It's simply holding people accountable to balance out their balance sheet of perceptions. Because when they're infatuated with something, they're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. When they're resenting something, they're conscious of the downsides and conscious of the unconscious of the upsides. And these will create philias and phobias if they're not balanced. And I can ask questions and extract meaning out of things and bring it back into a nice balanced state and liberate an anxiety or a fear or a fantasy. Because fantasies are just as devastating as the phobias. In fact, the very reason why we have phobias is because uh, we have a fantasy about how it's supposed to be and it feels like a nightmare in comparison. So they always come as pairs. If you're infatuated with something, you fear it's loss. If you resent something, you fear it's gain and you have a fantasy to escape it. So these are always there and it's just ratios of perceptions. All of it is ratios of perceptions and they can be changed. Well, speaking of pairs, you talk about two forms of stress and how they play a role in mental health. So, so walk us through those. And then more importantly, how we use that knowledge to, to change the way we, we may be perceiving the world. Yeah. Well, there's two forms of stress. One is distress, which is uh, due to the perception of loss of that which you seek or the perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. It's an amygdala response uh, from perceptions that are imbalanced um, based on those associations and links we just made. And it's a non-resilient, partially subjectively biased, rigid state of perception that we're holding on to, that we're fearing the loss of. So if you're highly infatuated with something, you're going to fear their loss. If you're mildly infatuated, you're going to fear less loss. If you're neutral, you fear no loss. And if you're highly resentful, you're going to have a fear of gain. And if you're moderately resentful, you're going to have a moderate uh, fear. And if you're neutral, there's no fear. Neither is there philia or fantasy. So if I bring things back into balance, I can transform distress into eustress. Eustress is actually wellness promoting. Distress is illness promoting. Eustress is when you actually embrace supportive and challenging positive and negative events simultaneously. And that's what I call discovering the hidden order. Claude Shannon and two other gentlemen who got Nobel Prizes in the area of information theory showed that Disorder is nothing more than missing information. And this goes all the way back to Clausius and thermodynamics and, and Boltzmann and Lord, uh, uh, there's another gentleman, Lord Byron. And, and it and basically describes that if you're infatuated with something and you're conscious of the upside but unconscious of the downside, you're missing information. And therefore you have an emotional disorder which is called a seeking. And you have an impulse that seeks that that prey, you might say, that person you want to consume and eat, that thing you're infatuated with. And if you have resentment to something, which represents predator in your brain, you're unconscious of the upsides and you have missing information. And disorder means missing information, according to Claude Shannon. But if you bring that information back and see both sides simultaneous and have mindfulness instead of mindlessness, you can discover the hidden order that was there that you had overlooked with your subjective bias and see an objective truth which liberates you from the emotional baggage and bondage of the infatuation resentment. The noise in the brain from facilitation and inhibition in the brain are resulting from these conscious-unconscious splits. 
So if you're infatuated with something, really infatuated, you can hardly sleep at night because all the noise in the brain. If you're highly resentful, it's hard to sleep at night because all the noise in the brain. And all that is is incomplete awarenesses looking at night for the opposite in the form of dreams to try to balance it to help you have vitality again. Once you ask the right question, because the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask, once you ask the right questions to see both sides, to see the upsides to what you thought was down, the downs to see what was up, you immediately go from disorder to order. I call it the hidden order because you were subjectively biased and it was unconscious, it was hidden from your awareness. And now you see that what was in the hidden order, and now you end up having used stress because you're seeing both sides simultaneously. You have mindfulness. You don't have noise in the brain. You have clear consciousness, and you're present. And you take out the entropy, which is the arrow of time, and put yourself into a timeless mind, kind of an ageless body state, and become present. And that is something that is reproducible, duplicatable. It's very simple to do. It's not difficult. It's just asking the right question and holding people accountable to dig and discover what they actually know that they don't know, they know. And their intuition always has that answer, and it's about waking up the intuition. I always say the intuition is always trying to reveal the unconscious into full consciousness. And so I, I, I just simply, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, for over 40-something years. <laughs> I'm certain I can get that job done. Yeah, and the discipline to it, uh, getting to that clear mind. You know, you... Uh, write about something I'm really interested in. It's the psychology of priority. That when we take a closer look at our priorities, it can really change our lives. And when we identify our life's true and highest values, right? So talk about how, you know, when you get your priorities right and, and how you take that on. Yeah. I, I've, been, I've been working with values since I was 23. I'm 68 now, so I've uh, been doing it a bit. And a bit. I... Uh, <laughs> I ask people what their values are, and 99% of the people, and I mean that, 99% at least, uh, don't know. They think they know. They have an opinion about it. But what they're doing is they're injecting the values of social ideals and traditions and conventions and what they think it should be. And they're, and they're not even looking objectively at themselves and look at what their life actually demonstrates is valuable to them. So I don't go by what people say. I go by what um, – I go through a more of a – uh, I've developed a system to get past the subjective filters and try to get down to what they're actually doing with their life. How do they fill their space? What do they keep in their space? What do they spend their time on? Uh, what exactly is it truly energizes them? What exactly uh, do they spend their money on? Looking actually at their disbursement sheets. Uh, what exactly is it most ordered in their life? Where are they most disciplined spontaneously in their life? What do they think, visualize, and internally dialogue with themselves about, about how they want their life that shows evidence of coming true? What is it they constantly want to bring conversations to? What is it that they really have as a goal that's persistent, consistent, that's coming true? And what exactly do they spontaneously want to learn about and keep buying for when they research things and look at things online, etc.? And I, I go through and identify what they really value, what their life demonstrates, because I'm not interested in what they say, because everybody says, oh, I want to be financially independent, but yeah, they're spending money on depreciables and consumables that go down in value, so they're not really committed to wealth building or they'd be buying assets. So I don't go by what they say, I go by what they live. So once we identify their hierarchy of values, which is a, a science on my website that I've developed, and it's free for people, it's complimentary, it's private, they can just go on my website and do it. Then I go through there and look at what's really priority to them. Their life demonstrates their priorities. Anytime they're living by highest priority, their self-worth goes up. Anytime they live by lower priorities, they go, that goes down. 
Anytime they live by higher priorities, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain and activates the executive center where they're more neutral and objective in their assessment of reality. And the moment they do lower value systems, they become more subjective because they're not fulfilled and they go into their amygdala and they look for immediate gratification to compensate for the unfulfillment. And they're now into their survival mode, not thrival mode. So the second they set goals that are congruent and aligned with value, the highest value, the very highest, the most non-derivative intrinsic value that they have, they are most objective, most neutral, most resilient, most adaptable, have the greatest expansion of space and time horizons, are the most present, and the highest probability of walking their talk and waking up leadership skills and executive function where they have inspired vision, they have strategic planning, they end up executing those plans precisely, and they have self-governance. They literally calm down the amygdala's impulses and instincts that distract them from being present. So living by highest priority and delegating lower priority things, dedicating to highest priority, delegating lower priority things, is one of the essential roles in self-mastery and helping you have an inspired life. I, I, I only teach, research, and write. Everything else is delegated. I don't do anything else. I even joke about it when I'm with my girlfriend. I said, look, if, if, uh, if I was to uh, have George Clooney or G Gerard Butler or you know, Brad Pitt make love with you on my behalf and delegate that, would you still love me? And every time she says, I would love you. Even. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love that. That's quite the delegation right there, yeah. <laughs> that was a joke. That's a joke. Hey, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, we got that. Yeah, we got that. Okay, so how do people learn more about your work, John? They simply go to my website, uh, drdmartini.com. You just type in my name, Dr. Demartini. You're going to find me. And go to the website and start exploring. There's, there's enough to keep you busy. You're going to have to be a Buddhist believing in reincarnation just to get through my website because there's no way you can do it in one life. <laughs> okay, good, good. Okay, and, and speaking of our lives, we want to start, bring, bring back to your journey. Uh, you overcome you overcame many obstacles as a young person. Love your story, and I want you to tell our our listeners about your personal journey, and and more importantly, how it led you to do the work you're doing today, and how it it helped you realize you can accomplish the amazing things you've done in your life. Um, I I was born in, on uh, Thanksgiving Day in early fifties, and. Uh, I found out that I had a speech impediment when I was one and a half years old, and I had an arm and leg turned in, so I had a deformed arm and leg, and I couldn't walk, so I had to wear braces on my arm and leg until I was four, and I had to go to speech pathologist until I was about four. When I got to first grade, my teacher asked my parents to come and said, look, I don't think he's going to ever be able to read or write. He's not going to communicate effectively. I don't think he's going to amount to much or go very far in life. I only made it through elementary school with the help of the smartest kids by asking the kids what they got out of the class. And they thought I was a weirdo because of the way I spoke. <clears throat> when I made it, I made it through elementary school by asking kids. And today my, my career is based on asking questions. So I think that was a great gift. And I travel full time and I think that constraint on the things that are a blessing. I always say everything in your life that you can't say thank you for is baggage. Everything you can say thank you for is fuel. And I really believe that all those things I went through are perfect for my journey. But when I turned 12, my parents moved to a small town, a low socioeconomic area, and I didn't have any smart kids. And I left school at that time because I couldn't, I couldn't pass. And um, 
was a street kid. So I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a park. I lived in a abandoned cars. I lived in diners. I wherever. Sometimes I'd meet girls or whatever, <laughs> some place to stay. And um, I did that, but there was one thing I picked up when I was nine, and that was surfing. But Texas wasn't the surf capital in the world, so I wanted to go to California and Hawaii and down to Mexico. So at 14, I hitchhiked from Houston, Texas, out to California and down into Mexico that summer. And then at 15, I... Uh, I had panhandled enough money in Huntington Beach, California to be able to fly to L.A. It was only $86. And I first, when I got to Hawaii, I, I lived underneath the Sunset Kamehameha Highway Bridge. And um, then I, it was too loud there, so I moved to a park bench, and uh, which is still there, believe it or not. So I just took my daughters there, and they saw the place. Then I lived in a, in a bathroom that was there when it rained, and an abandoned car that I found and then finally a tent. And I was, you know, a long-haired hippie surfer guy living on the North Shore surfing big waves. I mean, I surfed big waves, got into some surf, you know, movies, and, you know, I, I was pretty good at, at standing on a surfboard and doing surfing at the time. And then I ended up nearly dying, riding a big line in K-Day, and um, my diaphragm stopped on me from something I was eating, which I wasn't realizing it was accumulating, but I had strychnine and cyanide poisoning, and it stops your diaphragm, and it caused spasms and it luckily um, I was led back to my tent because I fell unconscious and um, somebody knew where I stayed in the jungle and so they put me back in the tent and left me there a lady found me there a few days later unconscious and um, led me to a health food store and got me food and cleaned up my tent and from the health food store there was a little flyer on the door uh, announcing this guy speaking and for some reason um, had a picture of this guy I thought that guy looks interesting and uh, this guy at the health food store said you need to go to a yoga class and learn how to have mind over matter because you're spastic and so I saw yoga and I understood that word didn't know what it meant and went to this class and there was a Paul Bragg and he was speaking that night and and to make a longer story short, he said something that night that made me believe that I could overcome my learning problems. And, he, and, and I never thought that was going to be real. I was assuming I was going to make surfboards under Dick Brewer's tutelage. But that night, um, I thought, wow, maybe I could overcome this thing and maybe learn how to read and write and become intelligent someday. So I, shortly after that, I decided to fly back to, uh, well, I, I I flew to Los Angeles, hitchhiked back to Texas to see my parents. And they taught me, encouraged me to take a GED test. And some miraculous thing, I, I almost felt like there was some sort of divine intervention or something. That I passed this test guessing. And I had me a high school degree. I felt like, you know, pretty cool. I have a high school degree. And I tried to go to college and I failed my first test. I thought I was going to do the miracle of the taking a test and guessing and passing that too. But, And I almost gave up on it and I was crying underneath a Bible stand in my mother's sunken living room in Houston, in this town, Richmond. And uh, my mom came home from shopping and she saw me there and she said, son, what happened? What's wrong? And I said, mom, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate like my first grade teacher said. She didn't know what to say, and all of a sudden she 
she paused and then she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream, whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves, which you've done, or return to the streets and panhandle as a bum, I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what. And when she said that, my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw the vision that I saw the night I met Paul Bragg, of me standing in front of a million people speaking. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called studying and reading, learning, I'm going to master this thing called teaching, and I'm going to do whatever it takes, I'm going to travel whatever distance, I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth stop me, not even myself. I hugged my mom, I went into my room, a Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary was there, and I started memorizing 30 words a day. My mom tested me on 30 words a day for the next two years until I had 20,000 new words in my head. We memorized 30 words a day. And I, by then, I was passing school. And by then, I was starting to excel. And I started having people come up to me and asking me questions, which was a surprise, which was so inspiring. You have no idea. And I started to gather students. And by the time I went on to University of Houston, I would have sometimes under the trees, I would do my yoga and I would have 100, 150, 125, sometimes up to 400 students gathered every day asking questions. And I was reading 18 hours a day on average or go to classes in between. And I just wanted to learn and catch up with all the other kids. And my professional school, I taught all the way through school and my teaching went from the city to the state, to the nation, to the world. Now I've been blessed to speak in 172 countries and teach. So you never give up on your dream. Story. You know, if you if you stay with your dream long enough, everybody dives out and you end up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait them out, wait them out. I you know, the thing that always touches me about your story is the the power of someone believing in you. You know, the power of a mother's love. Absolutely. And that she, you know, on your journey helped you learn those thirty words. You know, um, I got a question for you, and we, we always love to ask our, our guests, what are some of your personal rituals? How do you stay, you know, mentally uh, focused and your emotional fitness? What are some of your rituals that keep you on the, on that healthy path and away from the strict nine and, and those awful foods that you ate when you were homeless? Well, I have delegated everything except what I love. So I don't have any responsibility other than to teach, research, write. And I have a captain that's, you know, sails me around here or I got a pilot that sails me, takes and flies me around. So, and I don't have a, I haven't driven a car in 32 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. Once I learned that if you fill your day with high priority things, it doesn't fill up with low priority things. Uh, I decided to live by priority. And because of that, there's no distractions really. And you don't live to eat unless you're in your amygdala. The amygdala is the thing that looks for sugar and looks for immediate gratification. And the executive center uses its brain to think. It's a systems two think when you think before you feel, where systems one is a feeling before you think. So I don't have impulses to binge or eat or I don't know that. I have a very regimented, um, well thought out selection of foods. And I have a, a, a series of chefs here that make sure that I eat exactly how I schedule, where I want and rotate it. So it's all planned out. I've got 
juices and vegetable juices, and I've got that done every day. I've got nutrients. I've got, I've, I, I live my life by priority, and I don't get distracted easily. So um, if you fill your day with high-priority things, your executive center runs you, and you govern your life. If you don't, your amygdala runs you, and you're impulsive and instinctual, and you let extra, extrinsic stimuli run your life. You're either internally driven. I, I said on the Secret movie many years ago that if the, when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder than all opinions on the outside, you're, you begin to master your life. Mastery of life is simply prioritization because you automatically have discipline to do what's highest in your priority because you spontaneously act on it. I don't need to be, I, I can tell you, you, if you can find anybody, I've told people, if you can find anybody that's had to motivate me to be a teacher in the last 50 years, you got a free seminar for me because you won't find it because I don't need motivation. Motivation is a symptom, never a solution for maximizing human potential. It's a symptom. It's an extrinsically uh, sourced system of reward and punishment. And it's for people who are, you might say, caught in mass consciousness instead of master consciousness. And I'm a firm believer that prioritizing your life liberates yourself from a lot of those things that most people run their life by and frustrate their life by. Anytime you exaggerate yourself over others or minimize yourself to others, you're going to uh, project your values onto others and expect them to live in your values and have futility or inject the values of others into your life and expect yourself to live in their values, which is futility. Instead of honor yourself by living by priority and honor others knowing they do the, two, the, the same and then do something with utilitarianism to ex express a service to them in sustainable fair exchange manners. If you do that, you're very inspired and you have no desire to be distracted. Which is prioritization. One reason Chester wears the same orange shirt every day. Just one less decision to make. Love it. Yeah. Hey, this has been such a great discussion today, John. I think we've learned a lot. Um, what are a couple of things you'd like our listeners to take away? I know that's a lot to ask for somebody who's, who's read and compiled 30,000 books and done all the work you've done over 40 plus years. What would you like our listeners to take away from our discussion today, though? Well, whoever's listening. Hi. Uh, you want to give yourself permission to be your most authentic self because the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you might impose on yourself by comparing yourself to others. Don't compare yourself to others and put people on pedestals or pits. Put them in your heart and compare your daily actions to what you value most and compare your actions only there. When I've worked with the Olympic medalists who are swimmers or performers in some form, I found out one thing. They don't compare themselves or look at anybody on left or right of them before they do their performance. They focus on their mission. I'm a man on a mission. Find that mission. That mission is the highest value spontaneously wanting to express itself as a yearning that brings tears of inspiration to your eyes when you even contemplate it. That's a sign of authenticity. Let that be your guide and delegate all lower priority things. Find a way of doing it and go on with doing the thing that inspires you most and do it in a way that's remunerable, where you get paid handsomely to do what you love in a way that serves vast numbers of people. And watch what happens to your life. It's amazing. Great advice. What a wonderful way to end the, uh, end the interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your story and for your teaching and your priorities. It's really been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Adrian, so really interesting, 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 you know, Dr. Demartini. What were some of your takeaways? Well, 
really fascinating that uh, beginning with this idea, look, anxiety is a type of fear. I don't think that's probably surprising to anybody, but but what assumptions are we making to ourselves that, look, I'm going to lose this, I'm going to gain something I don't want, that how do we change those associations in the brain to put a more positive spin on what happens? And how much are we working to do that in our lives when we face something and turning this fear into something inspiring? It was a great idea. Yeah. You know, I, I'm always encouraged when people tell us their personal stories. They found somebody who believed in them. You know, for Dr. Demartini, it was his mom. And once she had that support and she believed him, said, I will love you no matter what, that gave him the courage to move forward. I'll tell you the other thing that really, um, and I'm sure you wrote it down as well, he says, uh, the things that you can say thank you for are fundamental to you that you really value. The things that you can't say thank you for are just excess baggage. That was a great takeaway for me. It was this idea of really figuring out what our priorities are in life because we do this, right? We say, well, my priority is to spend more time with my family and yet I spend 70 hours a week at work. Well, I right. don't know if you know, your life is living up with what you say your priorities are. So maybe your priorities are more um, you know, looking good to other people, you know, the, the, the praise of the world, if you will, etc. So we really have to strip this off and say, what do we really value? Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be aspirational. We can't push ourselves. But when we start setting values to really what we are, we are motivated by, that's where we're going to have the highest uh, satisfaction in our lives. It's really powerful. Yeah, that whole idea of um, what do you prioritize, right? I, I, I really appreciate when he said, look, I delegate everything except the things I really love. Now, not all of us can delegate everything that he gets to delegate. You don't have a private chef and a, and a pilot and a driver? Come on, Jess. I, I, I did, but they all moved out. That's why we had kids. Uh, they, they all started their own lives. Um, I really enjoyed that concept, though, that, look, yeah. If, yeah. If, you're deleg- if, the stuff, if you're doing a bunch of stuff you don't enjoy, can you delegate it? Can you really focus? Can you get your priorities to the point where, you know, you're really doing what you love most of the day, every day? And then that permission to be your authentic self. I thought was a great way to end the interview. Yeah, that's what I wrote down last, too. It's such a great idea. Don't compare ourselves to others, but our highest value. Think about that. What What do we want to be? And, you know, that value that brings tears to your eyes that, as our mentor Marshall Goldsmith says, is that goal that you'll never achieve. But that's the goal that you should be striving for every day. And that's really powerful. So we want to thank Dr. Martini for joining us. Uh, special thanks to our producer, Brent Klein, to Christy Lawrence, who helps us find such amazing guests, and to all of you who listened in, and, and especially if you downloaded, that helps us build up our uh, network of, uh, of podcast uh, guests and, and different people we can have on the show. Yeah, and if you like the podcast, please share it. You know, we'd love you to join our online community. Uh, we used to be called We Thrive Together, and now it's called The Culture Works, where we've created a safe community where people can talk about their anxiety, get great advice. We're always uh, uh, sharing our latest research and, and, and writing as well. And um, please buy our book, Anxiety at Work. It's available at fine bookstores everywhere. And feel free to, to leave a, a review on Amazon. And we love speaking to audiences around the world, virtually or in person, on the topics of wellness, resilience, anxiety at work, culture. Give us a call, and we'd love to talk to you about your event. 
Well, you know, Adrian, every time we do one of these podcasts, it's just the sound of your voice lowers my anxiety. So I just want to say thank you to you. And I'm sure we're going to have another great guest right behind this one. But thanks again for being my wonderful partner, calming my anxiety, and uh, writing all those wonderful books together. Hey, thanks, Jess. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. Until next time, we wish you the best of mental health. Take care and be well.